I'm not going to review it all this evening, what we covered this morning. I'm just going to assume that you remember it. It was only a few hours ago. It's time for us tonight to go as quickly as we can through the rest of this book. The rest of the book is broken into three sections. First of all, we have the interchange, the dialogue between Job and his three friends. Then we have Elihu explaining his, pers his perspective on things. Then we have God saying some things of his own. Those are three sections. We'll go quickly. I'm not... The, the dialogue between Job and his three th friends is so similar from chapters 3 through chapter 30 that we don't really need to look at every chapter in very much detail at all. Just look at a couple of verses for you to see that the perspective never really changes. They're not very good friends. But let's turn to chapter 6, Job chapter 6, and begin, and we're going to be flipping pages and we will get through it, in short order, the Lord willing. Job chapter 6. Now remember in Job 3, Job began his complaining. He said, it's, it's terrible, the bitterness that I'm enduring, this trouble that's come my way. He says, I wish I had never been born. That's where we, we covered this morning. Eliphaz then, the leader of the three friends, jumps in in chapters 4 and 5 and tells Job that, what's he complaining about? All he's getting is God's justice. He deserves it. He's a sinner. He's a wicked man. He's a hypocrite. And that's what we're going to see over and over again. Can you imagine friends like that? I hope we're better friends than that to each other in this congregation. When someone's enduring some tribulation and we go up to them and tell them right off the bat, well, just hang in there. All Just endure the chastening of the Lord. That isn't comfort. We're going to see that shortly. Telling someone they ought to hang in there and endure the chastening of the Lord is not comfort. How do you know it's the chastening of the Lord? When you say that, you put yourself in the foolish boat that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were in. You don't know what it's for. Job chapter 6. Now Job is going to have to defend himself against Eliphaz, so here we go with defense number 1 in chapters 6 and 7. Look at the first two verses. Job answered and said, Oh, that my grief were thoroughly weighed, and my calamity laid in the balances together. I wish you men knew how bad it was if it could be put in the balances so that you could see it, so that it could be quantified. Job here reminding them that it's a bad situation. Now look at verse, verse 14. To him that is afflicted, pity should be showed from his friend. But he, now who is that? The friend. But he, the friend, forsaketh the fear of the Almighty. Who's he talking about? Good old Eliphaz. He said a good friend's going to show some pity to a man who's in trouble. You've already forsaken the fear of the Almighty the way you're treating me. If you fear God and you love God, what does that mean you're going to do to your brother? You're going to love your neighbor as yourself if you love God. And what Job is saying is the way you're treating me proves you don't fear the Lord. You've already forsaken the fear of the Lord. Look at verse 30. Job here says, Is there iniquity in my tongue? Cannot my taste discern perverse things? I mean, if I'm a, if I'm a hypocrite, shouldn't I know that? That's what he's saying. I mean, what, what do you think you're telling me? If I've sinned and done a bunch of wickedness, shouldn't I know that? Shouldn't it be weighing on my conscience? Can't I discern wickedness in my own life? Chapter 7. Now, toward the end of chapter 7, the last two verses, Job admits that he has sinned. Verse 20, I have sinned. What shall I do unto thee, O thou preserver of men? Why hast thou set me as a mark against thee, so that I am a burden to myself? And why dost thou not pardon my transgression and take away mine iniquity? For now shall I sleep in the dust, and thou shalt seek me in the morning, but I shall not be. 
Job is beginning to slip. What did he say in chapters 1 and 2? The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he worshipped. He fell down and worshipped. He said, what to his wife? Shall God give things and shall he not take them away? Now he's saying, wait a minute, Lord. Shouldn't you be forgiving me? Can't you forgive me? You know, that's not the quickest way to get God's mercy. The quickest way is to say, Lord, I deserve every bit that you're giving me, and you're God, and I'm a worm. The Lord will say, remember that publican who smote his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. How long did it take for him to get justified? It says when he brought his head back down and went to his house, he went justified. That's quick. That's quick. Job's defended himself against Eliphaz. He said, I can tell whether I'm a hypocrite or not, and you've already departed from the fear of the Lord the way you're treating me by not showing me pity. Well, now Bildad jumps in, verse 8. Did you get this morning the cycles we've got to go through? Eliphaz is number one, then Bildad, then Zophar. Job defends every time. Then they go through cycle two. Then they go through cycle three. But here's Bildad in chapter 8. And all Bildad basically does is says that he agrees with Eliphaz. Let's read the first six verses. Now look at the comfort in these verses. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, How long wilt thou speak these things, and how long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? Hot air. Doth God pervert judgment, or doth the Almighty pervert justice? If thy children have sinned against him, and he have cast them away for their transgression... If thou wouldest seek unto God betimes and make thy supplication to the Almighty, if thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee. Do you know what he's saying? Job, if you'd get things right in your life, things would work out. Now, what kind of comfort is that? Your children probably sinned against God. That's why God took them away. If you'd get things right, why the Lord would awake and listen to your prayers. But you've got to get things right. Look at verse 13. So are the paths of all that forget God, and the hypocrites' hope shall perish. Who is he talking about? His friend, Job, calling him a hypocrite. And no wonder his hope has perished, because he's a wicked man, as chapter 8 describes. Well, here comes Job. He's got to defend his integrity and character in chapter 9. In chapter 9, God, Job admits that what Bildad said is true. God does judge hypocrites and wicked men. He says it in verse 2. I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? I mean, how can a man be perfect? I've been pretty close, he's going to say, but how can a man be perfect? God, If God judges wickedness and God judges hypocrites, we've all been wicked and hypocrites to some degree. And he goes on in this chapter, the last three verses of it, verses 32 through 35, where he describes his need for a daysman that would stand between him and God, put a hand on him, put a hand on God, and reconcile the two parties. He wants he wants an occasion to have an interview with God because he feels that if God would sit down with him like a reasonable man and hear his history and look at what he's done and all the prayers he's offered, that God wouldn't treat him this way. And he's beginning to talk that way with this daysman. He knows that he's so far removed from God he can't have the audience, but he wants it anyway. And he prays for this daysman in chapter 9. Now in chapter 10, he starts to complain even stronger in the first four verses. My soul is weary of my life. I will leave my complaint upon myself. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. Now he's going to let go, and the bitterness of his soul is going to affect what he says. I will say unto God, do not condemn me. Does that sound like chapter 1 and chapter 2? Do not condemn me. Show me wherewith thou could... 
wherefore thou contendest with me? Is it good unto thee that thou shouldest oppress? Different attitude, isn't it? Is it good unto thee that thou shouldest oppress, that thou shouldest despise the work of thine hands and shine upon the counsel of the wicked? Hast thou eyes of flesh, or seest thou as man seeth? That's blasphemy. You look, like, you look on things like man does? How can you shine on the wicked and punish me? Elihu will bring this statement up again when we get to chapter 33 and 34. Job is falling downhill quickly. Now remember, Job started out well and he didn't sin in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And what I'm preaching the book of Job for is that you'll make it past chapter 2. God can make it rough sometimes, but are we going to make it till the end? Job didn't. It's, a sorry, it's, a, it's sorry that he didn't make it, but he didn't. That's enough of that defense. There's not much change. Toward the end of chapter 10, he says, I wish I hadn't been born. He's back to his same sentiments of chapter 3. Well, then Zophar, the third of the three stooges, jumps in in chapter 11. Zophar, the Naamathite. Zophar jumps in. Look at verses 1 and 2. Look verse 2. Should not the multitude of words be answered? And should a man full of talk be justified? Why, do we have to listen to this hot air coming out of Job? Shouldn't somebody answer this man? Who's going to let this man give an excuse for his case? Verse 3, Should thy lies make men hold their peace? What'd they just call him? A liar. Those friends that supposedly sat there for seven days and didn't move because they were so grief-stricken with Job's dire straits are now calling him a liar. And they're just getting started. So is Job, as you'll see. Look at verse 6. Oh, that God would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are double to that which is. Know, therefore, that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. <laughs> now, is that a comforting blow? You, you're, you're sitting there. You've lost everything. Can you think of anything he didn't lose? His heart was still beating. Anything else he hadn't lost. Someone says his wife. <laughs> Better dead than have a wife like that. What hadn't he lost? And here comes a man who says, you've received less than you deserve. Now, is that a low blow? Can you get any lower than Zophar and what he said to Job? Job takes up again in, verse, in chapter 12. Told you we'd go fast. Job chapter 12. In chapters 12, 13, and 14, Job is now going to be answering all three, and especially Zophar. He mocks their wisdom in verses 1 through 5 of 12. Verse 2, I like this one. No doubt, but ye are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. I mean, when you three die, I guess wisdom's going to disappear from this world because you've got it all. That's what he said. I mean, he's mocking them. It's going to get better. I can't wait to get to a certain place. You'll know when we're there. Verse 3, But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Yea, who knoweth not such things as these? I am as one mocked of his neighbor, who calleth upon God, and he answereth him. The just upright man is laughed to scorn. Now, who's the just upright man? He's getting a little, little bold here in defending himself against Zophar. Verse 5. He that is ready to slip with his feet is as a lamp despised in the thought of him that is at ease. Who's the man just about to slip? Job. I mean, he's only got one banana peel left, and it's the grave, right? What's, what else is left? One banana peel left, and Job's in the grave. He's the one about to slip. Those three friends are sitting there. They've got fat checkbooks in their pocket, and they're making fun of him. That's, that's pitiful for friends. Look at the first five verses. Chapter, chapter 12 continues on the same vein. 
If you've read the book of Job, you know that there's a lot of repetition, just a lot of good poetry, a lot of sarcasm, too. Chapter 13. Lo, mine eye, Job says, hath seen all this. Mine ear hath heard and understood it. What ye know, the same do I know also. I am not inferior unto you. Surely I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to reason with God. I, do you see Job sliding a little bit? Blessed be the name of the Lord. All he did is fall down and worship. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. I'd like to reason with God. I'd like to reason. A worm wanting to reason with his maker. The potsherd of Isaiah 45, verse 9, that I mentioned last Sunday night, the potsherd of Isaiah 45, 9, wanting to say, why didn't you make me with some hands? Remember that verse? Forget it, Job. But ye are forgers of lies. Now who's calling who a liar? Job's calling his three friends liars. Ye are all physicians of no value. You doctors aren't worth anything at healing. Oh, that ye would altogether hold your peace, and it should be your wisdom. Why, if you men would shut your mouths, you would be wise. Listen, the Holy Spirit recorded this for us. This is quite a dialogue that we have going here between these friends. Okay, life as now feels its time. Well, chapter 14. Let's see what we have in 14. In chapter 14, Job has a brief revival. Look at it in verse 14 of chapter 14. If a man die, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time will I wait till my change come. We're going to see a couple brief revivals in Job's thinking. He's going to forget his circumstances and look forward to the resurrection. Right here is one. I can wait for my change to come. Shall a man live again after he's dead? Yes, indeed. The answer to that rhetorical question is yes. And so Job here has a brief spot of light on the resurrection. We're going to see it again in chapter 19. But Eliphaz says, enough of this. We need to jump back in this poor man. He's starting to feel good again. So in chapter 15, Eliphaz takes over. Look at verses 1 through 5. Verse 2. Should a wise man utter vain knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk? or with speeches wherewith he can do no good? Yea, thou castest off fear, and restrainest prayer before God. For thy mouth uttereth thine iniquity, and thou choosest the tongue of the crafty. Those are low blows. Do you know what Eliphaz is saying in verse 4 when he says you're casting off fear, and you're restraining prayer? Brother, you ought to be on your knees repenting for your wickedness. You're restraining your prayer. You ought to be begging God for mercy because you're a sinner. You're a wicked hypocrite. You're casting off fear. And in a sense, he was. But these three men are going way overboard in their condemnation of Job. You're going to see that Elihu will condemn Job also. But he does it in a very different way than these three guys do. They're going overboard in telling Job to get down and repent when, in fact, God wasn't punishing Job for anything. And you're going to see that. Job is not being punished for anything in the book of Job. Look at verse 34. There's, I have a lot that I could say, but I've got to move. Verse 34, For the congregation of hypocrites shall be desolate, and fire shall consume the tabernacles of bribery. Who's he talking about? Job, the hypocrite. Well, Job has to come back in chapters 16 and 17. Let's look at the first six verses again where we get the most sarcasm. Verse 2, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are ye all. Shall vain words have an end? 
or what emboldeneth thee that thou answerest? How in the world can you be so bold as to keep talking to me this way? He's sitting there in a campfire that just went out with a broken Coke bottle. He's got boils running pus from head to foot. He has nothing left. He's in bad shape. And he's asking, what? how in the world are you so bold to keep coming at me with these vain words? Verse 4, I also could speak as ye do. If your soul were in my soul's stead, I could heap up words against you and shake mine head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth, and the moving of my lips should assuage your grief. Though I speak, my grief is not assuaged, and though I forbear, what am I eased? That is what a righteous man ought to do. We ought to show pity and try to comfort and assuage the grief of a man who's in a situation like Job. These men don't have any mercy at all. You know, they're, they're hard-line Joab-type preachers. You know who else could have preached here? Jonah could have preached here. James and John could have preached here. Remember last Sunday? Righteous indignation, that spirit that some of us, the, the spirit that some of us have been guilty of in the past, the Joab type of mentality, you're too hard for me, you sons of Zeruiah. Well, you're too hard for me, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And Job's trying to tell them that. Look at chapter 17. Chapter 17, verse 8. Upright men, Job is still defending himself, upright men shall be astonished at this, and the innocent shall stir up himself against the hypocrite. The righteous also shall hold on his way, and he that hath clean hands shall be stronger and stronger. But as for you all, do ye return and come now, for I cannot find one wise man among you. Here Job's drawing a great big gulf between him and his three friends. I'm the righteous. I'm going to get stronger and stronger, and I'm going to hold on my way. But as for you men, there's not a wise man among you. He's getting a little bold himself in condemning them now and comparing his righteousness versus theirs. Chapter 18, we're now to man number two in cycle number two. Bildad jumps back in. Chapter 18, look at verses one, two through four. How long will it be ere ye make an end of words? Mark. And afterwards we will speak. Shut up and listen, and then we'll talk. Wherefore are we counted as beasts, and reputed vile in your sight? He teareth himself in his anger. Shall the earth be forsaken for thee, and shall the rock be removed out of his place? I mean, Job, it may be mad, but is nature going to show any recognition of what you're experiencing? What you're tearing yourself for? I think Job had some reasons to be a little frustrated and a little worried and concerned about his situation, and Bildad's just making light of it. The rocks aren't going to move, Job, because you're having a few difficulties in your personal life. Not comforting Job at all. Look at verse 5. Yea, the light of the wicked shall be put out, and the spark of his fire shall not shine. Who's he talking about? Job again. Look at verse 21. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him that knoweth not God. Accusing Job of not knowing God. Well, here comes Job, verse nine, chapter 19. He cries out in verse 2, How long will ye vex my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times... <clears throat> now, there's a little exaggeration there, but it's a few. These ten times... If you read your Bibles, you'll find ten times used in several places as just a round number of many times. These ten times have ye reproached me. Ye are not ashamed that ye make yourselves strange to me. 
It's important here to see that this, this wasn't just coincidence. Satan is after Job. There's four steps. All possessions disappear. That's financial disaster. Health disappears. Your wife turns on you, and then your male friends turn on you. And aren't they doing a good job? I mean, are you about ready to curse God for what He's done for you? You've Listen, was Job a righteous man in chapter 1? I mean, when you're offering sacrifices for your children continually and you rise up early to do it, wouldn't you look back at that and say, Lord, I've tried, but then when these men are telling you you're wicked and you're a hypocrite and it's just God's judgment upon you, what would you might want to do? Curse God. Look at how the devil works. Friends in the church are important. Friends in the church are important. Friends that hang better than these three friends did. Chapter 19. God, okay, Job gets another brief glimpse of the resurrection. Verse 25. <clears throat> Verse 25 of Job 19. Job said, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Now his skin's already in bad shape, and he says after the skin, which is about gone, if worms were to eat my whole body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself, and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand, and that I'll see him. He's got a brief glimpse of that resurrection again, but every time he takes his eyes off the resurrection and puts them back on the present, he starts complaining about his bitterness and wishes he was dead. But now when he's on a roll like this, those are comforting verses. We've used them many times in the past, haven't we? Because they are comforting verses. But it doesn't keep his gaze there. He lowers it back down to earth when he life has Bildad and Zophar get it back down there with all their encouraging words. They're not even going to hold out prospect of a resurrection for him because he's a wicked hypocrite. Because he's a wicked hypocrite. Zophar, the third of the three stooges, Cycle 2, chapter 20. In chapter 20, let's look at the first few verses, beginning at verse 2. Therefore do my thoughts cause me to answer, and for this I make haste. I have heard the check of my reproach, and the spirit of my understanding causeth me to answer. Knowest thou not this of old, since man was placed upon earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment? Though his excellency mount up to the heavens and his head reach under the clouds, yet he shall perish forever like his own dung. They which have seen him shall say, Where is he? Now is that comfort from a friend? Look at how low they're getting, saying that Job's going to disappear just like his own dung does. And they're going to, men are going to be asking, Where is he? Where is he? Job's been forgotten forever because he's what? A wicked hypocrite. Chapter 21, Job comes back to defend himself. That's what the book is. It's a tennis game, bouncing this ball back and forth, a ball of sarcasm between these friends. Chapter 21, verse 2, Hear diligently my speech, and let this be your consolations. Suffer me that I may speak. And after that I have spoken, mock on. <laughs> mock on. You know, we may have rock-ons in America, but Job said mock on here in Job 21 and verse 3. As for me, is my complaint to man? And if it were so, why should not my spirit be troubled? Mark me and be astonished and lay your hand upon your mouth. Mark me and be astonished. Don't say anything more because I don't want to hear any more. Job says in chapter 21. 
Now, Job finally uses a little bit of reasoning. So far, he's just been saying, I'm in bad shape, and I'm pretty righteous, and God isn't fair for what he's doing. Now he remembers something he knows, and he says, if I'm wicked and I'm a hypocrite, things ought to be going for me better than they are. Shouldn't they? Psalm 73. The wicked have it pretty good in this life. Job, fi Job finally uses some reasoning. It begins in verse 6. Even when I remember, now he's told them to mark me. You're going to be astonished now because I'm going to lay something on. You put your hand over your mouth and shut up and listen. That's what he's... Anybody have a problem with that? That's what he's saying right here. Put your hand over your mouth and shut up. I'm going to give you something that will astonish you. Verse 6. Even when I remember, I am afraid, and trembling taketh hold on my flesh. Wherefore do the wicked live, become old, yea, are mighty in power. Their seed is established in their sight with them, and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Job's is already blown away. Neither is the rod of God upon them. We know that from Hebrews 12, don't we? Their bull gendereth. Anybody, everybody knows what that means. Their bulls have calves. No, their, their bulls father calves. Let's use that expression. Their bulls gendereth and faileth not. Their cow calveth and casteth not her calf. They send forth their little ones like a flock and their children dance. They take the timbrel and harp and rejoice at the sound of the organ. They spend their days in wealth and the moment go down to the grave. They don't linger in a campfire like Job was. They go down a moment. You know, they have a heart attack, go out of here with no pain. They lived a full life, not bad. Job is saying that's the usual lot of the wicked. Therefore they say unto God in verse 14, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto him? Now, who causes the bulls of the wicked to gender and the calves not to throw their calves? God does. Why? So they'd say these things. What do we have need of you, God? We're content right here. The wicked enjoy their heaven in this life, and they've got hell to come. Job, the righteous man, and sometimes us, are going to experience our hell right here, and we've got heaven coming. That's the way God's arranged it. In general. In general. Chapter 21. Look at verse 34. Now, he concludes his lesson that he just gave them. He just taught them some Bible doctrine. The wicked have it good in this life, so how can you tell me I'm wicked? God wouldn't be chastening me if I was wicked and a hypocrite, unless I was one of his sons. Verse 34, How then comfort ye me in vain, seeing in your answers there remaineth falsehood. Now, you follow what I... He's just changed his tact a little bit. He's used a little doctrine, and he's showing them that they've got some lies in the, argue, the reasoning they're using. Well, Eliphaz comes back. This is cycle three. He's, you think they're going to give up? The devil's behind it. They're not going to give up. They come right back for cycle three in chapter 22. Look at verses two through four. Can a man be profitable unto God as he that is wise may be profitable unto himself? Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? Or is it gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? Will he reprove thee for fear of thee? Will he, enter in, will he enter with thee into judgment? Come on now, Job. Are you good enough to be able to demand something from God? Do you have a good reasoning basis with God? What do you have to barter with him? Is your righteousness good enough to get him in debt to you? Now, if some man said that to you, what would you say? No, I don't have any righteousness apart from Christ. And when you're looking at yourself and you're looking at other men, you, kept, you tend to forget about Christ. 
in Christ we have all the bargaining power in the world because we're heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. And we can come boldly under the throne of grace knowing that some man who suffered every type of temptation we ever suffered on our has died on our behalf. But here, Eliphaz is now working on the conscience of Job. You don't have enough to barter with God. What are you talking about? Chapter 22. And beginning at verse 5, Eliphaz begins to list a whole list of crimes. It's like he brought in a list and said, you're guilty of all these things from verse 5 to 14. Let me just grab a couple of them. Look at verse 6. Well, look at verse 5. Is not thy wickedness great and thine iniquities infinite? Accusing Job of infinite iniquities. For thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught and stripped the naked of their clothing. You know, a child came to the door of Job's house one day and all he had on was a little pair of shorts and it was 35 degrees outside and his fingertips were blue and Job took the shorts and kicked him out the door. That is what Eliphaz is accusing Job of. Can you see it? Right there in verse 6. And he goes on talking like that, verse 7. Thou hast not given water to the weary to drink. Thou hast withholden bread from the hungry. And so forth, all the way down to verse 14. Eliphaz is condemning Job with specific crimes. And now, beginning at verse 15, Eliphaz talks about the flood. Look at verse 15. Hast thou marked the old way which wicked men have trodden? Job, haven't you learned anything from history? What happened to men in the past who walked in a wicked way? Verse 16. Which were cut down out of time, whose foundation was overthrown with a flood. Now, what's he want Job to learn from this review of Genesis 6 through 9? He wants Job to believe that he's just like those that God overthrew with the flood. He's that wicked generation that God destroyed with water. Eliphaz is trying to crush him from the inside, that he's just like those who were destroyed in the flood. And what's a real sensitive Christian going to respond like? He's going to, it's going to work on him. It's going to work on him. Unless he knows that practical righteousness is irrelevant compared to legal righteousness, and he can look only to Christ and hang on to Christ and grab a hold of Christ's ankles and let the devil... You ever had things whispered like that to you? What'd you do, Red Baker, when you were a teenager? Ever, ever reminded of that since then? Ever reminded of that in the last year? Yes, we get reminded. What do we have to do with our practical wickedness and practical righteousness? Ignore it and grab a hold of the ankles of Jesus Christ and say, that's my righteousness. Get lost, Satan. But it, it's going to work on Job. It's, gonna, it's working on him. Eliphaz works him over here and accuses him of being the same as the generation that was destroyed in the flood. Now come to chapters 23 and 24. Job's going to answer this complaint. Look at the first seven verses. Verse 2. Now watch this. If you were accused of something like that, how would you respond? Look at verse 2. Even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. Will he plead against me with his great power? No, but he would put strength in me. There the righteous might dispute with him. So should I be delivered forever from my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there and backward, but I cannot perceive him. What he's saying is if God would give me some strength, just give me a few minutes, to debate with him, I'd get rid of this judgment forever. 
Now, Job's getting rather bold here in his relationship to God, but that's what he's saying. But notice what it's springing from. It's springing from a bitterness of soul in verses 2 and 3 that Eliphaz is brought about by condemning him with specific crimes and telling him he belongs in the generation that died in the flood. Do you see that? My complaint in verses 2 and 3 is bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groanings. So he says, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat, thinking that he has something he can claim before that seat. He doesn't take kindly to what Eliphaz has just told him he is. He says, I have done some good things, and I wish I was there to remind him of it. Because if I was to tell him all the good things I did, why God would withdraw his rod from me. That's how we all think. That's how we all think in the flesh. We're going to have enough practical and self-righteousness at the end of our days that will outweigh our wickedness so that we can, in comfort, pass out of this world. The only thing you better pass out of this world is your two hands locked around the strong, hairy ankles of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man and His righteousness that He shed for you, the Lamb slain, red in heaven now, at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us, and that's the only hope you've possibly got. Because if it wasn't for Jesus Christ, guess what generation we do belong in? The generation of the flood. Because the thoughts of our heart have been evil continually from our youth. Haven't they? Who do I need to ask this time? I think we all agree on that point. Job chapter 23, Job's defending himself now against Eliphaz. He demands an audience in those first seven verses. In chapter 24, he uses a second logical argument. In chapter 24, and we don't have time to look at it because it's the whole chapter, he says, yes, God does judge the wicked, but does he do it all at one time like he did it to me? I mean, look at he overthrew my house, he overthrew my possessions, he overthrew my family, he overthrew my health all at once. God doesn't usually do that with the wicked. He's trying to find some basis to hold on to that he's not the wicked man that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are making him out to be. Notice in verse 2 that he's describing wicked men. Some remove the landmarks. They violently take away flocks and feed thereof. He describes wicked men all the way down through here. And then he, just, he, he tells the fact that God doesn't judge them immediately. He lets the wicked go on in their wickedness because God wants them to store up wickedness for the day of wrath when he'll finally pour it out all at once. Now, here's the last statement. Bildad, he doesn't have a whole lot to say in chapter 25. It's only six verses long. But this is the end of the third cycle as Bildad, number two in the, three, in the threesome, speaks to Job. In chapter 25, he just leaves Job condemned, speaking, Dominion and fear are with him. He maketh peace in his high places. Is there any number of his armies, speaking of the armies of God, and upon whom doth not his light arise? How then can man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? Behold, even to the moon, and it shineth not, yea, the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man that is a worm, and the son of man which is a worm? <clears throat> See, Job's continually saying, I'm not that bad. I've done a lot of good things. If I could get before God and have an audience and could throw up on an overhead, an overhead slide all the good things I've done, God would take his rod away from me. And Bildad just leaves him, you're less than a worm, buddy. Repent. Repent. The same message he's got all the way through. Now these men are done. Job tapes up, takes up in verse 26 and runs through chapter 26 and runs through chapter 31 as he gives his summary of the debate. 
He's going to summarize everything here. And when you let Job talk a whole lot, he gets worse. When Job talks this many chapters all at once, it gets pretty bad toward the end. Chapter 31, I mean, is a list of specific acts of righteousness which he has done that he's laying claim to in chapters 26 through 31. In chapter 26, he says, Bildad, you're right. You're right. But that doesn't give me any comfort. What you've told me. Verse 2. How hast thou helped him that is without power? How savest thou the arm that hath no strength? God does judge the wicked. Men are worms before God. But that's no comfort to Job right now in his state of mind. If you did look at man as being a worm and God as being over the worm, it is comforting if you look at it the right way. But Job's not fit by this stage in the book of Job to hear that kind of advice. Chapter 27, he lays claim to a great difference between himself and wicked hypocrites. Verses 1 through 8. Moreover, Job continued his parable and said, As God liveth, who hath taken away my judgment, and the Almighty, who hath vexed my soul... I get scared even reading these statements by Job. All the while my breath is in me and the Spirit of God is in my nostrils, my lips shall not speak wickedness nor my tongue utter deceit. He's already doing it. God forbid that I should justify you. Till I die, I will not remove mine integrity from me. He already lost it about 20 chapters ago. Verse 6, My righteousness I hold fast. Whose righteousness? My righteousness I hold fast and will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me so long as I live. Let mine enemy be as the wicked, and he that riseth up against me as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the hypocrite, though he hath gained when God taketh away his soul? There is no hope for the hypocrite. It doesn't matter what hypocrite gains in this world. God's going to take it all away. But Job's saying, I'm not even in his class. I'm going to hold on to my righteousness, and I'm not going to let it go. I'm a righteous man. I'm going to stay that way. It's what he says in chapter 27. Now, in chapter 28, Job summarizes well our duty while in this world to fear the Lord. He does a great job. Look at verse 28. It's a summary of the whole chapter. Before we see verse 28, look at verse 10. He cuts rivers out of the rocks. Verse 11, he binds floods. Verse 12, wisdom is with God. Verse 13, man doesn't know the price of it. In verse 16, he talks about the value of gold. And the value of the topaz in verse 19, they're not equal to the wisdom of God. Verse 22, destruction and death say, we have heard the fame thereof with our ears. He's talking about the greatness of the Lord. And he says in verse 28, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. And he's right. He's right. He knows that God is great and God ought to be feared, but he doesn't apply it perfectly in his own life. He's still claiming his own righteousness. Chapter 29, verses 1 through 7. Moreover, Job continued his parable and said, Oh, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God preserved me, when his candle shined upon my head, and when by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in the days of my youth, when the secret of God was upon my tabernacle, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were about me, when I washed my steps with butter, and the rock poured me out rivers of oil, when I went out to the gate through the city, when I prepared my seat in the street. 
He's, he's building up. I mean, he's given you an autobiography here that is wonderful. Wonderful. What a, what a resume this man would have if you let Job write his own resume. And he's giving you that in chapter 29. And I wish we could read the whole chapter. I have read it to you before. But you can see it getting started, and it builds all the way through the chapter. Let's look at verse 21. Verse 21. You know, he's just building up. I mean, I washed my feet in butter. I was living the, the good life. I had fat everywhere. Rivers of oil were pouring through my house. I had it all. Verse 21, Unto me men gave ear and waited and kept silence at my counsel. I mean, when I was going to speak, people listened. You know, sort of like E.F. Hutton. Job was just like that. When, when Job was going to open his mouth, men stopped because they wanted to hear what Job was going to say. No, he's just remembering the good old days. Verse 22, after my words, they spake not again. I mean, what was there to say when I got done giving some advice? And my speech dropped upon them, and they waited for me as for the rain, and they opened their mouth wide as for the latter rain. If I laughed on them, they believed it not. I mean, for Job to get light in the presence of men, they couldn't believe it. That man is so sober and so wise. Is there anything funny enough for him to laugh at? They, did, they believed it not. And the light of my countenance they cast not down. They didn't do anything to displease the face of Job. I chose out their way and sat chief and dwelt as a king in the army, as one that comforteth the mourners. Now look at the first verse of chapter 30 and see what he thinks of his three friends. But now they that are younger than I have me in derision, whose fathers I would have disdained to have set with the dogs of my flock. That is my favorite verse. Here's Job, he's sounding so good, so righteous. Every word that comes out of his mouth is so valuable and men wait to hear it. I wonder if Eliphaz was waiting to hear this. That he wouldn't have set their dads with the dogs of his flocks. Now that's a low blow. That's Job. He's getting pretty low. Why? Well, he's getting low because he's putting himself up high. Look at how high he makes himself in chapter 29. He gets himself up so high, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar don't even measure. Chapter 30 is him condemning his friends all the way through it, describing what's come upon him and how bad it actually is. Ver chapter 31 is Job describing in specific detail how righteous he was. Remember, we've turned to Job 31 and verse 1 before as a good basis for a marriage covenant. I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? And for the next 10 verses, Job describes the fact that he didn't even com he's never committed adultery. He, never, he didn't even think about committing adultery because he made a covenant with his eyes. I mean, Matthew 5, 28 is clean when Job came to it. At least that's what he said. That's what he said here in Job 31, 1 through 10. I'd like to meet him and talk to him about that sometime, but that's what he said. He's getting very specific. I've never committed adultery, even in my heart. I made a covenant with my eyes. I wasn't going to look on a maid. And he says, if I've done anything like that, then let some other man have my wife, because I haven't done it. He says in verse 11, this is an heinous crime. Yea, it is an iniquity to be punished by the judges. It's a fire that consumes to destruction and would root out all my increase. See, I haven't done anything like that to have all my increase rooted out. He goes down, verse 16, talks about withholding food from the poor or cause the eyes of the widow to fail or have eaten a morsel in verse 17 myself alone. I mean, if I had food in the table, I invited people in and they ate of it. I was a good man. I was a good man. 
And he just keeps talking like this all the way through chapter 31. And then at the, in verse 40, Elihu writes, the words of Job are ended. So we're through stage one of the book of Job, the dialogue. We had the introduction in chapters one and two. The dialogue is over. Three men, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, one at a time, in that order, they never get out of that order, in three cycles, with Job defending after every single one. The only one who doesn't speak is the ninth accusation of Job, where Zophar finally gives up, and Job takes over and goes into his, 26, his chapter 26 through 31 autobiography on what a righteous man. Now, there's been a little pimpsqueak sitting there. Let's not use the word pimpsqueak. Let's say a young whippersnapper, a young Turk, as they're called today. He hasn't said anything because he's too young. Elihu. Verse 1 of chapter 32. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then was, what was Job's problem? Righteous in his own eyes. Did he lay any claim to righteousness in chapter 1? No, and that's where God said he hadn't sinned yet with his mouth. Did he lay any claim to righteousness in chapter 2? No, and God, I want you to love Elihu. I want you to take chapter 32 as a mandate for you to be bold when it comes to righteousness. If you know the word of God, don't you sit back forever. Use it. These men were wise. Job was a wise man, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Very wealthy man. Very reputable man. These other three friends were wise also. I mean, men don't... Listen, Eliphaz said a lot of truth. I mean, Paul quoted him in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, as I told you this morning. They were wise men. But Elihu was a lot younger. And I want everyone in this congregation, since we happen to be young, and that includes all of us, even those listening by tape, even those in Bristol, Virginia, and Tennessee, we're all young. And we need to look at Elihu as our example, not Job. Because Job's not a good example, but Elihu is. He sat there and listened to all this exchange, and it didn't get him frustrated. It didn't get him frustrated with the truth. He didn't leave the truth. It didn't cause him to be depressed. It got him angry. And he wants to set things straight, and he does that in chapters 32 through 37. Verse 2, Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite of the kindred of Ram. Against Job was his wrath kindled, because he justified himself rather than God. Elihu's angry at the first thing. He's angry at Job, because Job's been justifying himself since chapter 6, instead of justifying God. Chapters 1 and 2, he justified God. What does it mean to justify God? It means to say, God, you're right. What you did was right. Is that what he did in chapters 1 and 2? Absolutely. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What? Shall I curse God? He's given, he's taken away. He hasn't done anything out of, out of place for him. But from chapter 6 on, Job is justifying himself rather than God. Verse 3. Also against his three friends, that's Job's three friends, Elihu doesn't want to claim him, also against his three friends was his wrath kindled because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. So he's angry with the three friends for what reason? They condemned Job with no true answer for why Job was experiencing those troubles. And the next few chapters are going to be Elihu explaining exactly what's going on. But we've got to read chapter 32 to give you young men, we're all young men, a strong basis to stand on what we know from this book. The, you want to talk about a passage in Scripture that I resort to for confidence and boldness, it's right here. 
You know I have shelves full of systematic theologies by men who are old enough to be my grandfather. Should I be intimidated? As much as Elihu was by Eliphaz, as much as Elihu was by Bildad, no, I shouldn't be intimidated. Look at it. Verse 4, Now Elihu had waited till Job had spoken, because they were elder than he. He showed respect to elders. That's something all our young people should pick up on. He had waited to speak until they were all done, because they were elder than he. Verse 5, When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled. And Elihu, the son of Barachel, the Buzite, answered and said, I am young, and ye are very old. Wherefore I was afraid, and durst not show you mine opinion. I said, Days should speak, that is, who has the most days, who's the oldest, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man, and the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Now Elihu got the inspiration of the Almighty directly. Where do you get the inspiration of the Almighty? Right there in that book. Who cares if they're old? If they don't have an answer, say it. Verse 9, I like this very nicely. Great men are not always wives. Neither do the aged understand judgment. Therefore I said, hearken to me. I also will show mine opinion. Behold, I waited for your words. I gave ear to your reasons, whilst ye searched out what to say. Yea, I attended unto you, and behold, there was none of you that convinced Job, or that answered his words. Lest ye should say, We have found out wisdom. God thrusteth him down, not man. Now he hath not directed his words against me, neither will I answer him with your speeches. Elihu's going to give them something differently. Now the next two verses tell us who wrote the book. He's speaking in the first person just like the other writers did. You see, chapter 31, Job's in the first person, but it's part of a quotation. Verses 15 and 16 aren't a quotation. They're not words that are said. They're Elihu observing what's going on after his little outburst. And notice, they're in the first person. I. Verses 15 and 16. They were amazed. They answered no more. They left off speaking. Now, Elihu isn't saying that. Elihu is observing that. Verse 16. When I had waited, for they spake not, but stood still, and answered no more. Elihu's a little shocked. You know, he was a little timid about jumping in here with these older men. And when he finally said, I'm going to show you my opinion... And they didn't say a word. He was a little shocked. He waited for a minute, and they didn't answer anymore. So that's how we prove that Elihu wrote the book of Job. Any of your new translations that use quotation marks, they'll put 15 and 16 in quotation marks. You can't tell who wrote the book of Job. It's one of the little internal evidences of the King James Version. And then from verse 17 on, Elihu takes over, and he's going to tell them what he thinks. Now I like his attitude down here in verses 21 and 22. Let me not, I pray you, accept any man's person. Neither let me give flattering titles unto man. I wonder if Job had one, being the greatest man in the East. For I know not to give flattering titles. In so doing, my Maker would soon take me away. I like the boldness and confidence of this man. He's not going to give them any undue respect. Did he give some respect? They spoke first. He waited till they were done. Then he cut loose. But he's not going to call them by any flattering titles because if he did so, his maker would take him away. They're not worthy of it. Chapter 33. In chapter 33, the first 13 verses, Elihu simply says, 
God has the right to do whatever he wants with you, Job, period. There's so much here. It is so good. Verse 12. Behold, in this thou art not just. What he's done is he's just quoted Job. Let's get the quotation so that you can see. Beginning at verse 9, he's quoting Job, where Job said, I am clean without transgression. I am innocent. Neither is there iniquity in me. Behold, he findeth occasions against me. He counteth me for his enemy. He putteth my feet in his stocks. He marketh all my paths. Three verses where Elihu quotes Job, saying that God is unfair with how he's dealing with them. And Elihu says in verse 12, Behold, in this thou art not just. I will answer thee that God is greater than man. Listen, we have two-year-old children who get down beside their beds there's before their bologna sandwich, and they say God is great, God is good, and that's all the wisdom Job needed. God is greater than man. God is great. You want to hear some wisdom? Simple. The truth is always simple, right to the point. God is greater than man. Shut up, Job. In this, verse 12, thou art not just. I will answer thee that God is greater than man. You all know that I love the greatness of the God we worship. I, Job 32 is beautiful. Job 33 is beautiful. They're all beautiful here when Elihu starts talking because he talks about the greatness of God and Job doesn't have a right to say anything. Verse 13, why dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. He doesn't have to give you any account of what he's doing to you. He can come down and have your limbs drop off from your boils. He doesn't have to give an account. Verse 14, For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. Now I'm jumping ahead of myself. I just hit verse 14. This, this is the kernel right here of the book of Job, the last half of Job 33. Elihu is going to tell us why these things happened to Job. These, this is good. I hope you'll, you'll hang with me. I don't want to read more than I have to because I want you to grab on what's important here. We've got to read it all. Verse 14, For God speaketh once. He's telling how God does things. God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men, in slumberings upon the bed, then he openeth the ears of men and sealeth their instruction, that he may withdraw man from his purpose and high pride from man. God knows what every man is purposing that he'd like to do in the future. God looks down and sees that, and while a man's laying asleep on his bed, God plays around with the insides of that man's head, and the man doesn't even know it. God speaks once, God speaks twice, and the man doesn't even know it. We just read that in verses 14 and 15. In a dream, in a vision of the night. Why does he do that? That he may withdraw man from his purpose and hide pride from man. What Elihu is describing is God looking ahead to see where you could get yourself in trouble if God doesn't make a change in you to save you from it now. See, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar were what I call, they were bookkeepers, they were accountants, they were looking at the past. They were blaming, they were blaming all of Job's troubles on the past. Elihu is saying, God looks forward and he deals with men to save them on what could come in the future. Verse 18, He keepeth back his soul from the pit. 
the way of hell. He keeps men back from that pit and his life from perishing by the sword. Have there been times in our lives that if God would have let us alone, you know we would have ended up in trouble? I mean, what about the time I wanted to be in the Green Beret, waste my time in the army? What if I'd have done that? Where would I be today? Who knows where I'd been? I could have been in the jungles of Nam getting me a few Charlie. And that's what I thought the greatest pleasure in the world was back then. What if God had let me do that? What in the world would a, would a guy who wanted to be in the Green Beret, who had lived like the devil for five years, want to go to Bob Jones University? What made that change? He speaks once, he speaks twice, and man doesn't know it. I just gave that as one illustration. You all know things that you could have got yourselves into that you didn't, don't you? Verse 19. Oh, does this get personal now. He is chastened also with pain upon his bed, and the multitude of his bones with strong pain, so that his life abhorreth bread, and his soul dainty meat. Do you think Job wanted some caviar sitting in that campfire? No. Job didn't want anything dainty. He abhorred his life, didn't he? He wishes he had never been born. Elihu is explaining exactly that God did it with Job, and God does it with men, plural. Th this to me is beautiful because I can relate to every clause in this chapter. So that his life abhorreth bread and his soul dainty meat, his flesh is consumed away that it cannot be seen, his bones that were not seen stick out. Yea, his soul draweth near unto the grave and his life to the destroyers. If there be a messenger with him, an interpreter, one among a thousand to show unto man his uprightness, then he is gracious unto him and saith, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. This is some of the best language in all the Word of God. God, for no reason in the past, will take a man and subject him to disaster. Fear of death upon his bed. Pain upon his bed, where he begins to abhor his own life. And if there happens to be a preacher of the gospel nearby, a messenger, an interpreter, the message that comes with comfort is this, deliver him from going down to the pit, I have found a ransom. How many of you have God ever brought to about as low as you can possibly get without hope in this world, without God, without any purpose for living? I was the most miserable man on the face of this earth. I know what this is talking about. On my bed with pain, in my mind and in my flesh. And when the message comes, deliver his soul from going down to the pit, I have found a ransom. Guess what happens? You get fat real quick. Look at the next verse. Verse 25. His flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray unto God, and he will be favorable unto him. And he shall see his face with joy, for he will render unto man his righteousness. God will take a man, and how, anybody who hasn't had this experience, you better beg for it. God will take you and bring you down so low you'll wonder what the purpose for life is. And when you get to where you're in despair, your bones are sticking out. You've got weaknesses you didn't know you have because God's revealing all of them. Then the message comes. 
deliver his soul from the pit, I've found a ransom. And who is the ransom? The Lord Jesus Christ. And what happens instantly, the very next verse, the very next word after that period, in verse 25, his flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He's going to rejoice with joy. He's going to return to his youth. Now let me boast a little bit about my ministry. Anybody who knows me, anybody who knows me know I am more excited in my job here preaching the gospel than you can imagine anyone being excited doing anything. I'm a pretty excitable person. I was pretty excited at Michigan National. Go call them. Couldn't believe it when I was going to leave. But I'll tell you, I've never been this excited. Do I joy in the God that I worship? Do I joy in preaching you the gospel? I joy too long for most of you. But I joy in it, don't I? When did that come? I have told you and told you in my personal experience. I was 19. And I didn't know what in the world Jonathan Crosby was in this universe for. I was the most miserable human being there was. And when a message came, and when did it come for Jonathan Crosby? When he was 19, when he was at the bottom. That message came and said, there's a ransom for you. And you don't have to be the ransom yourself that I've been taught for 19 years. There's a ransom that can deliver you from the pit. What happened to me from the age of 19 on? I got fat. No smiles, anyone. I got fat in the joy of the Lord. Isn't that... Be this right here, friends, from verse 14 to verse 33 is the best, pa the best passage in the book of Job because it explains the whole book of Job. You want to know what was happening to Job? God was just bringing him down to make it better for him in his latter end. And did he make it better for him in his latter end? He was fatter not only spiritually, he was fatter physically. Right here, is the, this is the kernel of the book of Job, right here. He shall pray unto God, and He will be favorable unto him. Was God favorable to me? Listen, when I was 19 years old, do you know what I did for a living? I mixed mortar. I stood around with a shovel in 85 degree, 95 degree, 105 degree temperature, and mixed mud, and hauled it by buckets up scaffolding for men to lay bricks. And if they didn't like the texture I had made it, I got it dumped on me when I got back down. It was a good life. When that message came to me, I prayed, has God been favorable to me? I'm boasting, about, I'm boasting what God has done for me, not me. Not me. I'll tell you what, where I got me. I got me wondering what in the world it was all about. I was miserable. Did God take care of me? Was God favorable to me? Right here. Right here in Job chapter 33. Boy, I could preach for the next hour on that and I'm already run over what I wanted to do. Verse 27, he looketh upon men, and if any say, I have sinned, and perverted that which was right, and it profited me not, he will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. Did God bring us down where we said, I have sinned? Did he show us some light? Lo, all these things worketh God, oftentimes with man. <coughs> it's not just Job. It's for every one of us. And if you don't have anything that you can't squeeze into Job 33, I have pity on you tonight. Look at that. Look at that 29th verse. Lo, all these things worketh God oftentimes with man. And if He wants to do it to me again, 
And I can tell you that I have some of these things in this chapter done to me again. Let him do it. He did them to Paul all his life. A messenger of Satan in the flesh to buffet Paul to keep him from boasting in his revelations. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. To bring back his soul from the pit to be enlightened with the light of the living. What does God do all these things for oftentimes with man? To bring back his soul from the pit. But where does he want you first? He wants you at the edge of the pit with your fingernails on the edge, hanging over the edge. And then, when you're just about to slip, you know, the, the sweat off your hands is just about to lubricate those nails over the edge. He brings you back from the edge. Do you know what you do for that God that does that? You serve Him a lot more. To whom much is forgiven, much love will result. That's what He's doing with Job. He wants to get a little more out of Job. Job is a perfect and upright man. But do you think God settles for perfect and upright? On a relative basis? No, He's going to squeeze a little bit more out of Job. Mark well. Th this is beautiful. Mark well, O Job. Hearken unto me. Hold thy peace, and I will speak. If thou hast anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify thee. Do you see the bottom line of Job right there? Elihu just justified Job. Job, everything that came on you was not for past sin. Everything that came upon you was an example for what God, God does oftentimes with man in taking them to the edge of the pit so that he might pull them back so that he, sh he will appreciate God more. Anybody want to try to find a better passage in Scripture than Job 33, verses 14 through 33? Dream on. Even chapters 38 through 41, God doesn't improve on Elihu, and I'll tell you why. Elihu said, I speak for God in your presence. In chapter 34 and 35, Elihu, I'm going to go very quickly now. <laughs> chapters 34 and 35, Elihu goes back to tell Job that he was wrong to have tried to argue with his maker. Now, see, he quotes Job again in verse 5 of chapter 34. For Job hath said, I am righteous, and God hath taken away my judgment. Elihu goes on to say that that's not right. You shouldn't have done that, Job. He says that for two chapters, chapters 34 and 35. In chapters 36 and 37, Elihu establishes further God's righteousness, God's greatness, God's glory in order to encourage Job's submission and fear to that God. And when Elihu gets on a roll for the God and praising His glory, God can't stand back forever. And he jumps in in chapter 38 and for four chapters, God gives Job an earful on what he's done. And while there's a lot in Job 38, 39, 40, and 41, it's all having to do primarily with the natural creation. Job, look around and see what I've done. Now, are you, are you gonna, you wanna sit down at the Paris, you know, a table with me and, uh, have some Paris peace talks? You wanna reason with me, Job, based on what I've done? Let's talk about the ostrich. Can you make something that stupid? Let's talk about the peacock. Can you make something that beautiful? Let's talk about the horse. Can you make something that fast and fearless? On and on, just grinding it in Job's face. What does Job say in chapter 40? He's getting pulled back from the pit right now. Here's what he says as he's coming back from the pit. Verse 4, Behold, Job 40 and verse 4, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? No longer wanting to reason, he says, What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further.
Job takes right up again. I mean, God takes right up again for the rest of chapter 40, the rest of chapter 41. And then when we come to chapter 42, Job says in verse 2, Job 42 and verse 2, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? He's talking about himself. Therefore have I uttered that I understood not. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. Here I beseech thee, and I will speak. I will demand of thee, but it's a different kind of demand. And declare thou unto me, I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now mine eye seeth thee. Wherefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. And if a man has been to the edge of the pit, and God has revealed himself to that man whether speaking to him in a dream or in a vision or causing him to lay in pain upon his bed or whatever he has done, that is the result of the experience of a child of God. I repent in dust and ashes. At that point, what happens? Fatness comes. Did Job get some fatness after this point? Almost. God asks one more supreme test out of Job. This is one more supreme test, Job. Get on your knees and ask me to forgive your good friends. That's what he says. I love it. Does God know how to get to the bottom of our hearts? What do you think Job was thinking about those three? He told you what he was thinking in chapter 30, verse 1. They weren't worthy. Their, do their dads weren't worthy to be set with the dogs of my flock, and now he's got to get down and pray for them. Verse 8. God is now speaking to Eliphaz. Therefore take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering and my servant Job shall pray for you. For him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly in that ye have not spoken of me the thing which is right like my servant Job. You didn't talk about me in the right way. Job did. Job talked about God in the right way. Job just didn't talk about himself in the right way. But now these three friends are getting in trouble before the Lord. Verse 9, So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite went, and did according as the Lord commanded them. The Lord also accepted Job. Can, wouldn't you have loved to see the day? Those three men crawling to Job. Job... The God that we've been railing about for the last 30 chapters has told us we've got to come to you and you've got to pray for us. They did it. The Lord accepted them because of Job's prayer and the Lord accepted Job. Verse 10, And the Lord termed the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. And it goes on to say that he got his, he's got, he got his daughters back. They're named in verse 14. He got his seven sons back. And if he had 3,000 sheep, now he's got six. Whatever he, if he had 500 yoke of oxen, now he's got 1,000. Everything was doubled. The Lord made him fat in two ways. Number one, spiritually. He was fattened up after knowing the Lord in a way he didn't know him before. And second, he was fattened up physically. The bottom line is this. The practical bottom line, don't call me. Don't call your husband. Don't call your wife. Don't complain to church members when things go wrong in your life that God is punishing you for sins. Don't get on your knees always asking God to forgive you and make things better. 
you read Job chapter 33, verses 14 through 33, and see that God may be taking you a notch deeper so that he can put you a notch higher. He may be skinnying you up for a while to make you fatter down the road. And if you don't find comfort in those words, I can't comfort you. Job 33. May God bless the preaching of his word. I wanted to finish that book, if you couldn't tell.